All right, church, go and open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians, and we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this evening. And uh, as, we're, as you're turning there to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be in the first 11 verses. As we're turning there, um, one of the things that we're talking about is Jesus and the fake me tonight. That's, that's kind of the key uh, just title line of what we're going to be going off of. And, and I think that it, I'd be in pretty good company here. If I said, have you ever been in one of those scenarios where you felt totally, totally fake, but you continue to perpetuate that, that false perspective, false persona, whether it was at work or it was in, you know, your family, you go to hang out with your in-laws and you're totally fake there because if you're real, it'd get ugly, you know, and so that idea of, I, I got to put on a different personhood in order to actually navigate these waters effectively. For me, um, the inauthentic epicenter of my life or maybe, maybe one of the high points at least, maybe not the epicenter, but one of the high points was when I was in third and fourth grade. Um, third and fourth grade was a period of time for me where I was just starting to realize that I, I go to church and that's awesome, but kids are starting to talk and, and act in a way that we at least didn't do out in the open at church. And I thought, I like it. I like how they talk. I like how they act. And it's hilarious. And not only is it hilarious, but if I learn all of that, for, for example, the bad language, um, when I say it, I, I sound older. And I'm, do, you, do you guys remember that? You, you, anyone? You guys don't cuss. Back in the day when I used to, that's what I used to do. And I was like, oh man, this is like something that it was just always there. And I remember thinking, okay, the key thing is, is when I was only cussing at school, which is not good because... They frown on that in elementary school. High school, not so much, but in elementary, big time. And so I remember just going, so I just got to keep from getting caught by a teacher, and then I avoid doing it at home, and I'm fine. And so my friends and I, in third and fourth grade, more, more specifically fourth grade, fourth grade, we had mastered the vocabulary of a sailor. And it was, I mean, and we loved it. I mean, and it was, we would just like rattle it off like it was lyrics from a poem. Every, every word that you can imagine, bam, we dropped it with a vengeance and with enthusiasm. And we just over and over and over again. And we thought it was so funny. And I'm, one day I'm coming home, as I was like, it is the 80s. And so everyone rode like BMX bikes. And I rode a fake BMX bike that my parents got for me at Kmart. And uh, I'm riding my fake BMX bike up the driveway and the front tire hits the, the oil spill, like oil slick area, right from where um, our Colt Vista sat. And it was a terrible oil problem. And so um, my, my mom was out of town or something or was, was out of the store. And I come on up and my front tire hits that oil slick and, and the bike literally just goes horizontal. And I'm like, and I'm flying. And then all of a sudden I just like slam on, the, I mean, it just popped me up in the sky enough that I was, I was airborne, but then I landed right on top of the bicycle and that hurt. And I had practiced the words to say in such a moment. I mean, they were like, they were there. They were like, it was like percolating, ready to go. And all of a sudden, I just stood up and I looked at that, that Kmart bike, that cheap bike, that mom, it's not even a BMX bike. And it caused this accident. And I just kick. And I'm like, and as I'm like, like I'm talking, I'm varsity level bad language dropping about this, this, this slip up. All of a sudden, sanity comes back into, into focus. And I realized the front door is open and my dad's home. And I start praying to God, please, Lord, just strike him deaf. <laughs> or 
do the thing that doctors can do to a, a brain where you just push on it and he forgets something. And something, I don't care. It, it, what, it, it, just do it, save me. And all of a sudden I hear, Errol McFadden? No, it's Errol Everett McFadden. <laughs> and I, I can't remember crying that hard because I realized I was busted. But it was more than just being busted. I was found out. I was a fraud. And the humiliation, you, and you know what this is like because we've all been caught, Right? The humiliation of being caught and this what everyone thought or at least what I thought my parents thought of me and what the actual person was radically different and the humiliation of that Grand Canyon divide just lamblasted me and so what I learned in that moment was that if I'm going to be fake I need to cover my tracks better and that's what we call religion religion is a fantastic ways to cover your tracks a great way to throw people off the scent that on the inside there's still work that God needs to do. And all of a sudden we can start to get it in our head that this whole religion thing is something that's a great way to let people think that we're someone better than we are. And it's someone we hope to be, we aspire to be, but in all reality it's a distant, long distant uh, amount of space between that and who we really are. Paul comes into this letter to this church that he's writing to and does not let that sit. He doesn't let it just sit as a reality. He says, listen, there's something that's been planted in you that has to continue. And the only way that it can continue is if you tackle this reality of the fake you. And so we see in the first couple, if you've got your Bibles open to chapter 3, we're going to be looking at uh, the first four verses. If you have an NBC Bible, uh, there's notes in the back. And if you need a Bible, feel free to snag one. Uh, but we're going to be in the first four verses. And this is Paul. He's continuing on from what he was saying in the previous chapter where he was just saying, look, you know, you're no longer, you don't have to do this show for everyone. You no longer have to put on this religious face for everyone. Jesus has accomplished everything. And then he gets into chapter three. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he's not saying, here's the, here's the key thing we want to do in this following Jesus saying, we need to look and act as good as we can. Let's polish it up. Let's take you and let's make you a better you. He doesn't say that. He says the you is dead. That's the old you. And what God's work is, is going to take this dead you and make you alive and make you look like Jesus. That's his work. But in order to understand that, we have to have a brief history of the brain. Um, back in the, in the early days, like back in the beginning of creation, we'll call this humanity 1.0. Mankind had this brain, and he's thinking with the three pounds of noodles in his head. He's thinking, he has a proper uh, relationship with God. He has a proper relationship with nature, uh, all of the creation around him. And he has a proper relationship with one another. Things were solid, things were good until they weren't. All of a sudden, when sin kicks in, that gets into the next phase of life. All of a sudden, there's a new reality historically. Historically now, humanity 2.0 is a reality where we understand that a marring has taken place, a poisoning has, has come over our bodies, our, our world. And all of a sudden, this brain, which was once totally in relationship with God, totally in relationship with the nature around him, and totally in relationship with one another, is now at odds with God, at odds with creation and nature, and at odds with one another. This is the section that the Bible is written in. 
And if you ever wondered, <clears throat> wanted to know why in the world is the Bible, why, why did, why did, why is, what's the big deal about having a Bible? Why did God want to have a Bible? It's because of the fact that in Humanity 2.0, he had to illustrate the reality that this is not where the story ends. And so in, during this period of Humanity 2.0, God is letting us know the reality of what it looks like to take this mind which is so far from him and bring it back. Take this mind which is, is distant and in, in rebellion against him and bring it back to him. And that ultimately that could not be done on our own, but it was only a, totally possible it, through what Jesus did on the cross. And then when that happened, all of a sudden everything changes. And so during this time in humanity 2.0, when things are at odds with God and each other in nature, we're learning about a different reality. We're learning about the fact that God is training and conditioning those who are Christians, those who are followers of Jesus, to have a different mind. And this mind is actually one that's going to transcend this world, and it will be the new humanity. That this mind is different. And so if you're not a believer here tonight, if you're someone who's not a follower of Jesus, you would say, yeah, I'm not a Christian, or I don't really buy this Jesus stuff. I really like the music. Teaching is interesting, but that's just not me. I just want to give you permission tonight to know you don't have to listen to a thing I say. Because trying to accomplish what I'm about to say is impossible. It's impossible for any one of us in this room. Well, the only people that I can actually pull this off are those who are depending on Jesus. So if, if that's not you, just, just enjoy, just kind of just think about, uh, I don't know, the Blackhawks or something. Just enjoy whatever you want to, but just don't have to worry about this. This reality of what Jesus is, had accomplished is called the new humanity. And Paul describes it as the new creation. There was the original creation, but now there's a new creation where God is restoring something that's going to transcend this reality. It's going to go into eternity. And then, and then in fact, Paul talks about another place that if, you're going to, if you want to actually be transformed by Jesus, it's going to take something. Don't be conformed by, to the world. Like, don't just continue to look and act like everything else is going on around you. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of this. Because this is where, this is the epicenter of your thought, of your actions. And again, if you don't have Jesus, that is impossible to do. And it would be impossible for anyone except for this little cool word, ice. Everyone say ice. Dun, 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 dun. Yes, ice. Ice is a fantastic word. It's a Greek word that's right here, and we read it already. Um, and it's, it's, we read it when we said this, since then. Ice means since. And back in chapter 2 and verse 20, he uses it first by saying, since, ice, since you died with Christ into the basic principles of this world, and he goes on from there, and then he gets into chapter 3, since then you've been raised with Christ, and he goes on from there. Number one, since the fact that you're already dead to the old way of things, that's, it, you're, you've, you've been divorced from this old way, it's no longer baggage, it's no longer something that you have to drag, it's old. Since that reality, plus since the fact that you're not only dead to that, but you're also alive in the resurrection of what Jesus did, you're not, this isn't penalizing you, and now you're empowered to actually live out what he's created you to be, and think and act the way that he's created you act, to act. Not that once you become a Christian, everything is perfect, but not once, that you're, once you're a Christian, you can actually start to take the steps into the life that's going to transcend this life into eternity, and be the creature, the creation that God always, he always dreamed for you to be. The work that he wanted to start in you, that he did start in you, is finished. He didn't intend just to throw out a bunch of morality. In fact, um, one commentator put it this way. Paul has, about this passage, Paul has no interest in simply recording ethical ideals worth pondering. 
He fully expects Christians to abandon the vices and to live out the virtues. He grounds his exhortation in Christology, like where Jesus is the center, the study of Christ. Christians are being transformed into Christ's image. Because this is so, they're asked to be true to themselves. This isn't you being a fake person here. Just be a little bit more Jesus-y. Just be a little bit more religious-y. Just be a little more churchy. Watch what you say. Blah, 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 blah. No, he's saying, I want to tell you the real you. And the real you that you can step into. And so obviously, he steps into a situation here where he wants to attack and communicate with what reality this little thing and each one of us has to impact everything else. Paul is talking to a church again. We talked about this in the past couple weeks that he's never visited But he's been around enough people and himself to know that this, when Jesus gets a hold of our mind that transforms us, he's talking to a bunch of people who have kind of a loose relationship with Jesus and they're embodying everything that they had back in the past that was poisoning them. And he's saying, listen, I've been in towns that were poisoned by the same stuff. And guess what? So was I. But when Jesus actually took a hold of my life and I gave him the ability to take control of my life, all of a sudden, the things that you're still holding on to, we were liberated from. And it was awesome. On June 19th, there's a, there's a celebration called Juneteenth Day. I, some of you may have known it. I've talked about it before. But it's a celebration down in Texas about the day when s- there was over 225,000 slaves in Texas that after the war continued to act as slaves and, and be treated as slaves and were subjugated as slaves for two months after the war was over only because they never heard the truth. The word didn't get down to Texas fast enough. And so the landowners who were... were Um, owning the slaves, continued to oppress them. The slaves continued to act like slaves and continued to be allowed to be, allowed themselves to be oppressed until two months later. And all of a sudden, the word got down, the war is over. The war is over. You're liberated. And all of a sudden, for the very first time, these slaves recognized we're free. Paul's talking to a bunch of freed slaves who are still acting like slaves. And the more we read about it, the more we realize that's us, man. That is us. More often than not, we live like the liberated slaves who continue on in our slavery, living out this inauthentic reality, which is not our reality anymore. It was our reality, but it's not anymore. And what Paul does is he wants to focus in on the two, one of the two primary areas that he sees in this church. And the areas of, of, that were major issues were the areas of sexuality and the areas of anger. Like two things that I'm so glad we don't struggle with anymore at all. Like we're like, whew, That's so first century, dealing with sexual issues and anger issues. He deals with those because they're so potent. Now, this is a two-parter. This week is Jesus and the fake me. Next week, you're going to hear about Jesus and the real me because he gives the positive aspects of putting things on. But tonight, we're simply talking about how to counteract the things that are in us that are inauthentic and false. And he starts off, take a look at the next couple verses. In verse 5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And he says, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things. And he goes on from there. Um, this is very, it's an interesting set of, of things that he puts on here because he, he includes into some of the sexual issues greed. And this is why I think. I think that he puts greed in there and, and, and categorizes the whole thing as idolatry is because all of this stuff can end up being manipulation. See, in, in greed, what I'm doing is I am manipulating people 
and I'm manipulating people to get stuff. In sexuality, I'm treating people as stuff and manipulating them to get them. What he's talking about here is sexual morality, and the word he uses is porneia, the same word that we get pornography from. And he's saying, that's something that, that is the old you. It's something that sinks its teeth into you and it holds on to you. Impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Greed, again, is this, this idea of I, want, I just need more and more. When you're walking through the mall and you see something, I just gotta have it. Lust is this, this overwhelming, it's like getting hit over the head because you're just so overwhelmed by something that you have to have it. That moment right before you click on Amazon.com to buy the, the thing that's going to come shortly thereafter and even faster if you have Prime. This stuff, this whole thing is basically saying all of these things are, are, are things that he was saying, church and Colossae, I know this stuff like it, it has its talons in on you. And you might think that it's totally cool to hold on to Jesus and hold on to it, but I'm telling you right now that when you're holding on to Jesus and holding on to this, this is ruling. It is your God. It is your idol. Jesus isn't the one you're worshiping. You're worshiping this stuff. And moreover, you're worshiping yourself because you, each one of these things is your functional savior. Each one of these things cause you to become less and less the human that God has created you to be and more and more this, this other, other person that's not even human. Uh, one person put it this way. The world says that sex is about you and your fulfillment. The result, an understanding of sex that is shrivel, shriveled by selfishness. We are like Hollywood when we expect marriage to make every sexual experience passionate and pleasurable. As Christians, we need to be reminded that the purpose of sex is best realized when it involves not simply taking what we want, but giving of oneself to another. Giving of body, emotions, insecurities, fears and expectations, and loving adoration, wonder and service. Sex for the self can just as easily be satisfied in masturbation, but that misses the joy, the unity, the self-giving, and unconditional acceptance that are inherent to a sexual ethic that is both sacred and sensual. The reality is, is that what we've done and what the, the church in Colossae was doing was shortchanging their reality by saying, you know what, I, I love Jesus and everything, but I'm doing this because it satisfies me. And what Paul is saying, no, you're doing that and it's conditioning your brain to make that the idol. And so Paul might say, like to the church in, first, in the first century, he might say, look, listen, I know a movie's coming out, Fifty Shades of Beige, and what I, I really want to encourage you to do is to avoid that. Now, he might say that, and, and people might interpret that by him saying, oh, Paul's just saying that we should avoid 50 shades of beige because that's religious, and that's a, that's a Christian thing to do. And Paul would say, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, I can't stand religion. If you've read any of my letters, you understand that religion gets in the way of Jesus. I'm saying that that's not you. And the more that you, you engage that type of concept and perspective, the more you're conditioning your brain to be disappointed. I, six months from now, the disappointment that's embodied in the sexuality of our country, I think, is going to be phenomenal, which I think is going to lead to a lot of people having a real re-understanding of the Lord, but simply because they put their stock in this concept that this must be it. This must be the type that we're all aiming for and looking for and, and realizing that, for the Christians at least, we understand that's not us. And that's not us. One person put it this way, that we, we unfortunately fall into two categories as far as the whole sex debate. We're either animals or angels. And what we do often is this. We, either, we say, well, you know what? Um, I feel like this, and so I do it. I feel like looking at this, and so I look at it. I feel like, I feel like, um, I feel like going this far in this relationship, 
because look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man, all right? This is what I got to do. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. But, but, but a dog can say that. A dog can say, well, hey, you know what? Hey, I'm a dog, okay? Get off my case. Stop freaking out when I start doing my business and all around. I do that because I'm an animal. When we use that as, as our own defense as humans, we actually reduce ourselves to something that we're not. We're not mere animals, are we? But we're also not angels. The scriptures talk about angels as being these amazing, powerful beings that God created, but not beings that, that are sexual, they're kind of like, kind of like a neutral um, type of creation and species. And a lot of religious people say, well, I'm not sexual at all. In fact, I don't think about sex at all. I don't think about it and I avoid it and you shouldn't talk about it um, because it's, it's icky. And um, if I were ever to be married, um, I would certainly not enjoy it because that's equally icky and probably sinful and Satan's idea. God didn't create us to be angels, did he? No, he created us as something better than angels. He didn't create us to be animals, did he? No, he created us as something better than animals. He created us as humans. Humans who have an ability to enjoy and engage sexuality. To understand that God, God but, but that it's through the perspective of what God's created us to enjoy it in. Also, God's created us as humans to, to supersede sexuality, which means that if someone is not is not in a covenant relationship of marriage. They're not less of a person. They're not enjoying less of life. They're actually completely fulfilled because they're humans. God created them as humans and their fulfillment is God. Just like the dude or the lady who are married and their ultimate fulfillment is not one another. They don't complete one another, but God does. God created us as greater than this. And so here's what, when Paul's looking at this and as Christians, what we need to understand is this. If we are to be a people that are putting to death those aspects of us that are not the real us, how do we do that? How do we fight the fake in us that when it comes to inauthentic sexuality? And what I'm going to say, uh, this is going to be for this and the next one, that the way that we, we combat these issues is with a change of perspective, a reality check, and a movement. And the per- perspective starts with this. When you are in a moment where you are sensing that your brain is firing in a direction sexually away from what God, who God is, or let's just even take one of those other things on the list. Let's say greed. Your brain is firing like, I have to have this. I have to have this. Or again, back to the sexual dynamic, I have to have her. I have to have him. It has to be now. This moment. This is it. Stop. In fact, you might even want to just tell yourself, Stop. stop. Just take a deep breath. Physiologically, when we stop and we be still and know that God is God, when we be still, there's something that chemically happens in our body. The brain starts to function more on the frontal, uh, prefrontal cortex where we're actually rationally thinking about things more than when we're just reacting. So stop and breathe. Um, Psalm 62 talks about the concept of that my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. And so when you stop, you stop the situation. You're with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you're at home, you're alone next to your computer, and all of a sudden you're recognizing that these temptations are going, and they're like ranch, just notching up in your brain. All of a sudden, you say, okay, stop. And you take a deep breath and you gain some perspective. You stop and you recognize, okay, this is something that's happening. I know it's happening. And that leads to the reality check. Ask the question of, is this really the me he is making me into? What you're doing in this is you're coming right back to the whole palette reality that Jesus is our palette. He's our foundation. 
And if Jesus is my foundation and it is his desire to finish the gospel's work in my life, I ask in this moment after I've, taken a st- I've stopped and I've taken a breath, I ask the question, is this aiding that? Is this strengthening the picture of what God is doing in my life or is it weakening it? Is this, is this activity, is this, is this what, what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, is this actually aiding the work that he wants to do in my life or is it just chucking him away and making this my foundation because this is all that I live for? When we stop and we ask the question, is this really the me he's making me into? We're saying, is Jesus my foundation even in this? Is he, is he here for me even in this? Is he my strength and my foundation even in this temptation which seems above and beyond my head I, that I, I can't possibly avoid? Is this really, and, and then also you ask the question, is, is this activity that I'm thinking or doing or whatever, is this aiding the work that Jesus is doing in the people around me? Is this impacting them positively, building that that amazing wonder and awe that that we have when we look at what God's doing in a person's life? Or is it weakening that? And then we leave to movement because Christianity is about action. It's not just academic thought. It's it's full of life and movement. Movement is rise above it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, when, when we're recognizing this is happening, to flee, to run away. He says, flee sexual immorality, flee porneia. Flee, run away. Just, okay, you're in it. I, I got it. Now book it. Get out of the situation. Run because this is going to take you over. Uh, when people look at the human mind, they realize that it takes a few seconds for us to talk ourselves out of anything God wants to do in our life. So you need to make a decision quick that you're going to trust him and not yourself. Because if you start to like just wait in this, all of a sudden you will talk yourself out of the situation. Instead, rise above it. Leave the car that you're in with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Walk away from the computer. Just say, okay, you know what? I'm taking like a 30-minute break just to get some sanity. I'm walking away. Or just leave the situation. If you're in a greed moment, and again, okay, walk away from the computer. Or walk out of the mall. Get out of that shop where you're like, okay, this thing that I think has to be mine, it doesn't. So I'm just going to delay. I'm just going to put this off. And I'm going to think about this again in 20 or 30 minutes, and then I'm going to make a decision. Now listen, the truth is that Paul is writing this stuff to Christians. And so it's Christians that are engaging in all this stuff. And I would say that just as much that Paul could come and sit right here on the stool and talk to us and say the same things to us. Because as Christians, we struggle and we stumble with making all of this stuff God. Big time. We're just enjoying it in a way that God's not cool with. And all of a sudden, it's like we, we wonder why, why we're disappointed, discouraged, and dry in our faith. And so what he's saying to us is this, and what he's saying to them is this, I understand this is a struggle. You need to remind yourself this is not you. This doesn't kick you to the curb out of heaven or anything else like that. But whenever this happens, this isn't you. And it's you walking further and further away from the person I've created you to be. That person who wrote the previous article said this, often we tend to categorize having sex outside of marriage as worse sin than lying on your tax returns, but not as bad as sin as murder. We kind of have a, a classification thing. The consequences of sex outside of God's best may be more noticeable than other sins, but in the eyes of God, sin is sin. All of it offends, and all of it impacts our relationship with him. But Christ's blood also covers all sin. No matter what you have done, no matter what you struggle with now, in the future, or in the past, his blood covers that. You are new. Don't ever let yourself be defined by, what, by the struggles that you have or the struggles of the past. 
He has made you new. That's who you are. This struggle is not who you are. And one day you won't have this struggle. But until, until that day, you will struggle. But it's going to be a moment where you're just giving it over to him over and over again. Paul moves and shifts from that into the reality that we all seem to put to death other things. He talks about putting to death anger and rage and malice and slander and abusive language. That all this, that lies, that all this stuff are things that come out of our mouth in a moment of, of hatred or frustration that ends up communicating something that is not who we are. This is inauthentic to what Jesus' work is in our life. And when he uses abusive language, he's not just saying, don't have a potty mouth. Don't use bad words. Whatever Errol said in fourth grade, don't say that. That's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is when we use words, like literally cursing, it's like tearing someone apart. When you're using your words, even if they're Sunday school words, but you're using it to tear someone apart, you need to avoid that. Now, after the fall, something started happening with this amazing thing that God created that scientists are still discovering how amazing it is, but something happened with how it functions. If we look at the brain, we know about this. We've got the brain stem. Brain stem, we can't do anything about it. That that helps your body remember to breathe when you're sleeping. It helps, you know, and we're really happy about the brainstem. Nothing we could do about it. It just is there. It's awesome. Now, up here in the front, we've got the prefrontal cortex, and that's where our rational thought and our reasoning come from. Good stuff. That's where we're thinking through things, and we're actually, you know, really processing things in our brain. There's another awesome spot in our brain, which is this. It's the amygdala. Everyone say amygdala. That's our, where we get our fight or flight um, response. It's a 24-7 radar to keep you safe. So like if you're walking um, through the woods and all of a sudden a rock is about to fall on your head, what the amygdala does is it notices this because it's bing, 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 radar's going on. All of a sudden it says, there's a rock coming. And in point, let me just make sure that I got this, it's po- in 0.85 milliseconds, your body's able to react. What it does is it, the amygdala says, send chemicals up here quick. And all of a sudden uh, cortisol gets all through your body and all of a sudden in 0.85 milliseconds you're able to react and jump out of the way this is how like if someone is trapped under a, a car and you've heard stories about people actually having superhuman strength you know where they get that from the amygdala amygdala says quick we need like hulk level stuff going on in this body right now i know he's puny but send it and whoosh all of a sudden this guy who couldn't lift a, a fork is able to do this it's amazing God has given us the amygdala to protect us. And and what it does is it recognizes that it's going to protect our butt whenever it can. And it's going to do it quick. And what it does is this. It actually has this scenario of doing a hijack. It commandeers the brain. When your amygdala is triggered, it shuts off the prefrontal cortex. Now, what does the prefrontal cortex do? It thinks. Because the last thing your brain needs to do when a rock is about to fall on your head and kill you is, I wonder. I mean, it's heavy, but will it really kill me? Could I, could I suffer a wound from this and it won't be that big of a deal? You don't want to think. And so what it does is it has an emotional hijack of your brain, turns off your brain, and it says, we're going action right now. Boom! And all of a sudden you jump out of the way and everyone praises God. Whoop, whoop. It's awesome. Only problem with the amygdala is that sin entered the world. And since sin has entered the world, all of a sudden the amygdala does that. It protects us 24-7 and is on guard to save us. But it's not very discerning because it interprets not only physical danger and reacts to it like that and shuts off your prefrontal cortex, it also interprets social danger the same way. 
Okay, so you know that um, you, you've been in a situation like this. If you've ever, um, re, you know, you're, there's an argument going on and you have nothing to say, nothing's coming to your mind, you can't think of anything. And then 20 minutes later, like, oh, I wish I would have said this. You know what I'm talking about? Or if you've ever been in a situation where you walked into something, like, okay, I'm not going to get defensive. I'm not going to get defensive. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight. And then all of a sudden, and you look back and say, well, that escalated quickly. And you realize how crazy you can get. And all of a sudden, did I really say that? I can't believe I did that. When the amygdala fires and cortisol is sprinted all through your brain, that chemical stays in your brain for up to 20 minutes. So think about the arguments you've had that have been 20 minutes or so where you're just, it's crazy stuff. The amygdala has, has put chemicals in your brain which has shut off your ability to think about what you're saying and you're just blah, blah, blah. 20 minutes is a long time to talk without thinking. And how it starts is that your voice starts to go up, your palms get sweaty, um, and your only thought is, I'm going to take you down. You are, you're, it is over for you. Or that's, that's the fight scenario. Or you have the flight scenario where all of a sudden the amygdala fires and you just, you start to put your hands in your pockets and your shoulders go down and your eyes are just diverting away from whoever's talking to you. And you're looking at your watch or the wall or, or whatever. And, and you start saying things like, whatever, fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Why? Because you're trying to escape that scenario. I'll say whatever you want to say. Just get out of my face. That's, neither one of these things is kingdom work in us. Neither one of these things is gospel work in us. Jesus, his, the, the effect of, his, of the real us surfacing. Instead, this is, a, this is an awesome case one, uh, exhibit A from the fall of what happened to our brain in humanity 2.0 that Paul is talking about Jesus redeeming us from and renewing us from. Now, what ends up happening a lot of times in our, our, rea- in our realities is that as soon as we start firing this, these things start to happen, the very things that Paul talks about. The very things that he lists are fire from the amygdala because your amygdala is saying, I'm going to protect, I'm going to defend, I'm going to defend, I'm going to defend, I'm going to protect, I'm going to protect, I'm just going to keep on going until I take this person down. This happens like if you're at work and let's just say there's a guy named Ed and Ed really does something jerky and he does something to make you very, very angry. And so all of a sudden, this, and all of a sudden your palms are sweaty and you're like, well, I can't fight him because I work for him and um, okay, yes, okay, fine, yes, yes. But you walk out of there and you go find the first person you could talk to and you barf the situation all over them about what Ed did. I can't believe he did this. And then he said this. And all of a sudden, what's happening? Prefrontal cortex is off and your amygdala is firing. You're saying all this stuff, slander, lies, rage, anger, abusive language, blah, 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 all about Ed. And as much as the amygdala is not thinking rational thoughts, it can do one other thing, learn. And every time you communicate something, that past wound that happened, you're forming a neural net, an avenue for you to think about Ed from. And so every time you think of Ed, you're reliving that over and over and over again. And so that, I, can't, I, can't, I can't sleep. I'm so ticked off about what Ed did. That's it. I'm jumping on Facebook. I'm jumping on Twitter. And now, and now all of a sudden everyone knows it. But I've just relived it again, which has made that groove in my brain of thinking about Ed even deeper. And what I've done is I've allowed what Ed did to rob me of my joy in Christ and in this life. I've totally broken the image of Christ in Ed to everyone around so they know how much of a jerk he is. 
I've made everyone around me miserable because I've told them time and time again of all the jerky things that Ed did, and I've robbed myself of sleep. Why? Because I've allowed my amygdala to keep firing. You have a choice. This is where taking every thought captive comes into a believer's life, of saying, Jesus, I'm asking you to step into this, this thought, this moment, and help me fight this. So briefly, it's the same thing. We stop. We have a moment of perspective where we stop and we breathe. We have a reality check. We say, ask, is this really the me he's making me into? Okay, Ed has just said that, and it's making me, my blood is boiling. Is this Jesus? Is this Jesus' work in me, the way I'm thinking about Ed right now? And Jesus called me to, to, to love my enemies. And I'll tell you one thing. Ed is not, is not my friend. He is my enemy right now. I'd love to chuck Ed out the window. Okay, but Ed, Ed said stuff about me, and he, he, he trashed me, and he made me feel like, a, a, just like a, the smallest little person. He made me feel like I'm incompetent. And so I, I, was, I was just, but Ed isn't my anchor. Ed is not my foundation. Who is? Jesus is. What does Jesus think about me? Jesus loves me so much that he not only created me, but he died on the cross for me. And he crossed from heaven to earth to make it possible for me to have redemption, that I could walk with him for all eternity. He loved me that much. You know the weird thing? He loves Ed too. All right. I'm not going to let Ed hurt me like that. The me that God is making me into is someone who could love even a jerk like Ed. And I'm going to work every day to be more of Jesus' embodiment to this guy that made me feel like throwing him out the window. The movement is, I rise above it. Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't mean don't get angry. There's things to get angry about. But in your anger, do not sin. But instead, what we're supposed to do is to actually take this very thing that's in our head, these three pounds of noodles, and give it over to Jesus for full, 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 complete transformation. If you read all the way to the end of the Bible, it ends with Jesus saying this. There's going to come a day where he's going to make all things new. Where that mind that he's crafted in each one of us is actually going to transcend into eternity. And in that place, there are no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more evidence of this garbage that we have produced and spewed out on this planet. Instead, we see new life and the newness. And for those of you in Christ, you will experience that having had a lifetime of experiencing what it started to look like as we had our training wheels and thinking the way that God has crafted us. And then you'll see it in his completion. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray for every uh, person in this room. I think every single person in this room, Lord, all of us struggle with either one of these categories or both of them right now. Or we're someone who's walked a couple of steps of just solidarity with you and we've seen the example of your healing and your empowerment. Lord, I pray that you help enable every single heart in this room, every single mind that's firing right now, God, to be a person who understands our own weakness. God, that we can't think of ourselves greater than we are. We, we're, we're people that are prone to trip and slip up in either one of these areas, sexually or, or, or just with our anger and our rage. 
Lord, we have, we have a tendency to make idols out of anything that makes us feel uh, more complete, anything but you. So I pray that you remind us of who we are, that we are your kids, that we're completed by you, and that the joy that we live and the grateful hearts that we have, the gratitude that, that it is exhibited from us stems from a life being transformed and the fact that you're doing the work. And God, when we see that, we'll give you the thanks and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Now,